I'm going to admit, I didn't walk up here at the beginning of the third verse because I had no idea what the words of that song were. I've sung this been so long, and I was like, oh boy, we don't have the screen up here, so I couldn't just cheat and look. So I was like, I'm going to look at the chorus. I know the chorus. That's the way that goes. There are a lot of teachings, a lot of, that we hold to and hold dear, that we preach and teach and practice, that make us distinct from the religious world in general, from even what we might call the broader world of Christianity. You can go to a lot of congregations, a lot of churches, and you're going to find a lot of teachings, and some of them are very, very similar, some of you are very different. And one thing we always need to make sure of is that we're not holding on to different teachings just to be different, that we're not holding on to different teachings just as some kind of Church of Christ tradition, that we're not holding on to different teachings just, just because it's the way we've always done things. But we need to make certain that no matter what we preach and teach, it's because it's what the Bible says. If it really is our authority, then that's what we go back to. Not just tradition, not just comfort, not just the past, not just history. But what does Scripture actually say? And one of those teachings that is very distinct among us is the teaching of baptism. You can find all kinds of people who know it's there. I mean, if you, if you honestly read the New Testament, it, it's there. If you read the New Testament honestly, you, you can't miss the subject. It's going to be there. It's found in the, the Gospel accounts. It's found in the book of Acts. It's mentioned in the letters. It's just there. But what it is there for, in other words, what the purpose of it is, is one of the ways in which we stand apart from so many in the religious world. I want us to think this morning about some arguments against baptism. In other words, what are some things that people in the religious world around us teach that when they say, I know what you all preach and teach and say about baptism, but that's just not what I believe. That's not what our church teaches. I just don't think that's true. And I wanted to take this lesson from this angle because there's a couple of ways we can attack this, this subject. One is, of course, just to go through passages, talk baptism, and say, there it is. That's helpful when we do that from time to time. But sometimes it's also worth looking at what people say against certain things and seeing is there biblical logic to refuting those teachings, to making sure we know how to answer when someone says a particular uh, argument or issue against a subject. And I want us to think about some this morning. There's no way in this lesson we can name all of them. There's tons of them. We all know that. But I want to give five this morning. The reason I chose these five is because they kind of run the gamut from some that use Scripture and say, well, here's a verse. How do you kind of explain that? To some that are more just subjective, feelings-based, those sorts of things. And hopefully by looking at these five, we're going to not just refute them, but we're going to also notice enough passages that teach the truth that we'll know how to answer pretty much any objection that would come up as far as this subject goes. First of all, think about this argument. By the way, I'm hitting, I haven't lost my mind. It's not, the, the live stream is still seeing the PowerPoint. So that's why I'm hitting this. I, I, I'm, you're going, Adam's that much in, you know, in habit. He hits the button whether it's on or not. It is on for the people on live stream. You just can't see it. So it's, it's backwards today. Number one, if some people will say baptism is not, excuse me, baptism is a work. And we're not saved by works. Now, it's a good argument in a lot of ways. I want you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. 
Because there's a couple of very well-known passages that are sometimes used by those who would hold to this view that baptism is a work and we're not saved by works. In Ephesians chapter 2, one of the most beautiful passages in the entire New Testament, in verses 8 and 9, the Apostle Paul says exactly that. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And people read those couple of verses and say, see, right there. You're saved by grace, you're saved by faith, and in the very next verse, you're not saved by works. Folks, I can't argue with those couple of verses. I love Ephesians chapter 2. I love these verses, especially 10 verses of that chapter. One of the most beautiful sections of Scripture on salvation, in my opinion, found in the entire New Testament. I love these verses. And so long as we agree on what Paul has in mind in verse 9 when he talks about works, we can agree on that passage. Because the idea is not that we're saved by works. is not that I earn my way to heaven. That's never been the case. Well, I do enough good stuff that I present God some kind of resume and it's a, see, I've done every last little thing you have asked. Every I has been dotted. Every T has been crossed. Everything has been done. God, you owe me salvation because I've done enough good stuff. Absolutely not. We are saved by grace. We are saved by faith. But some things we can make sure we understand when we look at this passage as we study with people. Let me give you a couple. One is, baptism is not a work. And yet some people say, well, well, baptism is a work and we're not saved by works. So baptism is not a work. You've probably heard me say this before, but think about the way we often describe the plan of salvation and the words we use. I believe. I repent. I confess. I am baptized. Which of those is the only one that's passive? It's baptism. Now there's something that goes on. Someone must place me into the water. Someone must, someone must immerse me. But I don't do that to myself. Baptism is the only one that says that, that I am submitting my will to the will of God. It is the most passive thing we talk about. It takes a decision, and that's the faith that's mentioned in Ephesians chapter 2. But baptism itself is not a work. But also, when Paul talks about the fact that God's grace saves us, we have to make sure we understand what he means by grace. And I want you to think about what the same author would say in another letter. In Titus chapter 2, beginning of verse 11, Paul writes about God's grace. And he says, God's grace has appeared unto all mankind, teaching us. The King James Version has training us. Us. The reason you have those two different translations is because the word Paul used there was one for the full education of a person. Sometimes that takes teaching and sometimes that makes training, right? It kind of takes both of those things. But Paul used a pretty general word for educating. But think about that. That the grace of God has appeared to all mankind, educating us. That denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Without God's grace, I would have no idea how to be saved. Not a clue. But it's through God's grace or by God's grace that He has revealed to us how we can be saved. The fact that we even know baptism is a thing is because of the grace of God. Can you imagine if all Scripture told us 
was what we've done that's wrong and never told us what we're supposed to do to respond to us. How, how cruel would that be? But yet God's grace saves us by educating us, by telling us what God has done and how I respond to it. And also some people will use this, another well-known passage to talk about this, in John 3 and verse 16. One of the most beloved verses in all the Bible. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal or everlasting life. And people say, see, I mean, that's the golden text of the Bible. That's the verse. I mean, that, that sums it all up, right? And Jesus didn't say a word about baptism. Or did He? Because we, Nicodemus, how'd you know I was going to this, by the way? I'm, by the way, when Gary leads singing, he tells me, we'll do this. We'd, I just want to give him a say, as we stand and sing, he's preached the sermon through all the songs. But in, in John chapter 3, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and 11 verses earlier, in John 3 and verse 5, he told that same man, except one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, we can argue all day long to what, what he means by those two things, water and the Spirit, but it's in the same conversation where Jesus brings up something besides just, quote-unquote, just belief. But also, have you ever noticed the very first word of John 3.16 is a connector word? For. For God so loved the world. What have you just been talking about? And what we know is John 3 verses 14 and 15 He'd been reminding Nicodemus that Old Testament account you can read about in the book of Numbers where Moses lifts that serpent, that bronze or brass serpent up in the wilderness. And if people looked on that serpent, they, they would be saved. Transport yourself back to the book of Numbers for a second. If you were there when those serpents were walking around, the Bible calls them fiery serpents, probably, probably not because they were actually on fire, but probably because when they, when they bit you, it left something that felt like fire. But Moses said, if you look on this serpent that I've made, you'll be healed. And I step out of my tent one morning and I'm bitten by one of those snakes and I go back in my tent and I say, Moses, I believe you, but I'm going to sit here in the tent all day long because it's more comfortable in here. Is that the kind of belief that saves? No. When Jesus gave in John 3, 14 and 15, that illustration of the serpent in the wilderness, He was reminding them of, yes, I must believe enough to do what is said. For God loved the world in this way, that He gave His only begotten Son, if I may add a few words, that whoever believes in Him in that way, it's connected back to verses 14 and 15. I need to believe, there's no doubt about it, enough to do whatever Jesus says. Baptism is not a work. And I need to make sure that I understand that I'm not saved by earning my way. But that I tie together the grace of God telling me how to be saved with a faith that acts enough upon it to be saved as He would have me to be saved. In fact, Peter would say that baptism is an answer of a good conscience toward God. When I read that verse, I like to think about it this way, that baptism is where I say, I can't do this on my own. God, whatever you said, that's what I'm going to do. And He has said, He who believes and is baptized will be saved. A second argument that's sometimes made is that baptism is not for salvation. Baptism is because I've already been saved. Some of you remember the days when, when denominational preachers and writers used the phrase, it's an outward sign of an inward grace. That, that 
phrases it used all that much anymore, but the basic idea behind it is, is that I was already saved at a point of belief or some uh, conversion experience or whatever. And yeah, I know the Bible talks about baptism. So now as an outward sign that I've already had this inward experience, I'll be baptized. Turn to Acts chapter 2, because Acts 2.38 is one of our favorite verses right about baptism, but it's also one of the verses that's often used in this particular uh, discussion. This is the teaching that sometimes people say where before one is baptized, they'll make some kind of prayer or confession that says, uh, I believe that God, for Christ's sake, has saved me. And they'll point out that Acts 2.38 talks about baptism. There's no doubt about it. Peter talked to those people and said, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sins. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost. And I'll say, here's the thing. That little word for, for the forgiveness of sins, it's three letters in our English language. It's three letters in the original Greek language, E-I-S. Back in the day, scholars like to say it was pronounced ice. And so you had all these people who thought they were really cool in debates going, you're slipping on the ice. Ha, 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 ha. And then they figured out that's not how they pronounced it. It's actually pronounced ace, and all those jokes went away. So, so all, all the debates became boring. But they point out that that word can mean something forward-looking, toward, unto, those sorts of things. Or it can mean something backward-looking, because of. And so, so see, here's the problem. What Peter actually said was, repent and be baptized because your sins have been forgiven, because of the remission of your sins. How do we, how do we answer that? I'll give you three, three ways. One is in the very same verse. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Does it make any sense to repent of sins that have already been forgiven? Why would I do that? The Bible never says, I know, I know your sins have already been forgiven, but even though that's the case, you need to repent of them. It makes no sense. And since Peter connected repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins, both of those things are true toward forgiveness. But I also want to suggest to you that word that's translated as for is translated in the New Testament in an overwhelming number of ways forward-looking. You'll find that word that's translated here as for uh, 1,774 times in the New Testament. Over 1,230 of those times. It's translated as things like toward, unto, for, into. In fact, it's way over 1,230 of those times. That's just where I stopped counting because I've got other things to do besides count Greek words. Okay? But it becomes a place where you go, hmm, the New Testament writers seem to like to really choose this word as something that looked unto something. Yeah, they constantly did. And also we can know this is not the case because it would, it would contradict other passages of the New Testament, including Jesus himself. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Wait a minute. Why in the second part of that does he not talk about baptism? Because he didn't have to. If I believe, I'll be baptized. If I don't believe, I won't be. Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel of the whole creation. And we're to make disciples. How? Baptizing them. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We'll come back to that verse in a couple of minutes. Is it because I've already been saved? No. No. And if, if you here or on live stream or listening later on podcasts or anything else, 
If you were baptized at some point in your life because you were already saved, you need baptized for the reason that the New Testament gives. It is unto salvation, not because I was already saved. Number three, some people still like to ask the question, well, what about the thief on the cross? I mean, there's that blank page in your Bible that says the New Testament, right? And then you, then you start reading there, and you've got somebody who quite clearly was saved by Jesus in the New Testament. And I find it, by the way, utterly tragic that one of the most poignant and beautiful moments has been, has been misread and misused for a false teaching. And here's what I mean. Not, not, not that it's beautiful that Jesus is on the cross, but that moment where he has that conversation with the thief. And that thief realizes what's going on here. And that thief asks the question, or makes the request, excuse me, remember me. When you come into your kingdom, what a, what a powerful moment. Because if you put the accounts of the gospel together, you might recall earlier, both the thieves were railing against Jesus and doing all these things. And it seems that something along in the bay made, it, made one of them realize what was actually going on here. And Jesus responds to him and says, today you'll be with me in paradise. So we'll say, well, he wasn't baptized because he wasn't coming down off that cross. How do you answer that one? Turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Because in Hebrews chapter 9, the Hebrews writer gives us what is a practical statement, a practical teaching. In other words, it can be true just in our everyday lives, not just our everyday religious lives, but he uses it for a specific example. I want to read, I want to focus on verses 16 and 17. Let's read verse 15 to begin. Hebrews 9, beginning verse 15. Therefore he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new, 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 new covenant. So those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Now, practically, let's just pretend this wasn't a Bible verse. Practically speaking, we would know that to be true. Some of you have gone to a, a lawyer or maybe you've printed something offline, that, something online that uh, you, you can do, you know, print out inside, it's a will, and it has all these things about where your money's going to go and where your cars are going to go, and if you have children, you know, who's going to take care of them, if, if you die before, you know, before they're grown, and all those sorts of things. And, and you, you write all this stuff out, and you decide on all this stuff, it's really a difficult and hard thing. But when does that will actually go into effect? It's not just because you wrote it and signed it, does it? It's when it's confirmed that you have passed. And then you start having executors of the estate and all those sorts of things. We know this to be true as far as it's a, a practical thing. Why would the Hebrews writer talk about that? Folks, when Jesus saved the thief on the cross, I'm not trying to be frivolous or, or, or in any way funny, neither one of them was dead. What does that matter? The Old Testament was still in place and would be until Jesus took it out of the place, the Colossians writer Paul talks about, by nailing it to the cross. It's a good thing to look at the thief on the cross as far as one who realized in his darkest moment he'd come to Jesus. That's a powerful thing. It's a good thing to look at the thief on the cross as one who made a wonderful request of Jesus. That's a wonderful thing. But I am not saved in the manner of the thief on the cross, 
because I live under a different covenant, a different will, a different testament than he did and under which he died. Think also of Matthew's account of the Great Commission. We do ourselves, and I'll admit to it, we do ourselves a disservice when we start quoting that from verse 19. Because Jesus began in what we know as Matthew 28 and verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, based on that authority, and make disciples of all nations. He talks about baptizing and those sorts of things. When did Jesus say those words? When all authority had been given to him. It was after he had died. And after he had overcome death and finished the work that God had sent him to do. Before that, God was the authority. Now, Jesus is the authority because it was granted to him by God. And how did he use that authority? We make disciples by baptizing people. That's the new covenant, the new testament. I love the story of the thief on the cross. But not because it teaches me how to be saved, but because it teaches me the one to go to to find salvation. Number four, some people appeal more just to feelings or things and say, well, but here's the thing. I know what you're saying, but I feel saved. I feel saved. And they might go back to some experience they had as a teenager or a young adult, or maybe some huge life event where God did something in their lives and that was just a sign that confirmed within me that, that I was saved because I just, I just know that I am. I just feel that way because something is different about me. I, I never want to question someone's motives when they talk that way. I never do. But one thing all of us need to be certain of that we understand is that our feelings are a gift from God. They're wonderful. But our feelings can also be duped. Remember Joseph in the Old Testament? Was he, was he dead? Nope. Did his dad think he was? Yep. And did his dad do all kinds of real grieving and real, had go through real difficulty? Absolutely. And there was even, you know, quote unquote proof of the death of Joseph, you know, before Jacob, before Israel. Here, here's the coat. It's got blood all over it. And, and Jacob just decides, well, an animal got him. And in that part of the country, that was a perfect part of the world, excuse me, that was a perfectly normal thing to think. That, that kind of thing happened from time to time. And so for years, for years, Jacob, based on false information, believed with his emotions. But was Joseph dead? No. There were some ups and downs in Egypt, but by the time they were reunited, Joseph was doing quite well for himself. Thank you very much. He was, he was third in the kingdom. It's, it's remarkable. You ever, you ever gotten mad at somebody? I mean, really grit your teeth mad at somebody? Because of something they said? Only to find out they never said it. You ever felt feelings of bitterness towards something in your life? And I mean, it, it ate at you for a long time. Only to find out it never happened? I have. Why? Because our emotions are wonderful, but they can be duped. Our emotions do play a part in our salvation. It is not just some robotic thing. We should feel something when we are saved. We should feel different. We should feel alive. We should feel saved. But the feeling is not what saves us. 
Jesus Himself made that clear when He said to John 14 and verse 15, If you love Me, you'll keep My commandments. You'll do something. You'll obey. I can't just base it upon how I feel. And number five, some people might say, Okay, I get it. But let me just ask you, preacher. You're studying with somebody and they realize what they need to do and they die on the way to the church building. What if I die before it happens? You ever had somebody ask that? I have. And I've told you before, if you were here, in some ways, I've nearly preached that funeral. Where someone decided they needed to become a Christian, but then had a couple questions. We tried to help them, and they wanted to think about it. And before we could get back to where that person was, they had passed from this life. They knew. They knew. When people like to bring this question up, it brings two thoughts to my mind. One negative and one positive. The negative is, the odds of that happening are minuscule. Oh, well, You might know of someone, like I said, I know of someone who at least to some degree, but here's the thing, that person heard the truth for years. For years. But someone who has never heard the truth and then just happens in the moment they decide to become a Christian, on the way to the building, or at the building, or something, they pass from this life, the odds of that happening are absolutely minuscule. That's the negative. So what I mean is sometimes this is just put up as just a change the subject kind of question, or just to get you off your, your game kind of question. You know what the positive is. Why risk it? Why risk it? Do you believe? Then why not be baptized? For the forgiveness of your sins. So that never becomes a question. Will you come, we stand and sing, to encourage you.